Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 158, recorded on October 11th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. We start this week with the project that's taking aim right at Slack, MS Teams, and all the others. It's NextCloud with version 20. Is it taking aim at them, or is it just integrating them, accepting that they exist and that people will use NextCloud alongside them, or now, with them? Is all of the above an option? I think it really is a strategy of try to offer an alternative while also integrate. Embrace and extinguish. <laughs> oh, I think so. Only this time it's okay because it's from an open source project. I mean, one of the big features in NextCloud 20 is that talk is introduced bridging to Teams, Slack, IRC, Matrix, and a dozen others. And it's actually pretty cool setup the way they've done it. It looks like a pretty solid connection that remains persistent even when the users are not logged in. And in NextCloud 20, they've introduced sort of a watchdog-type service that monitors the bridge and will restart it if something goes wrong. And the idea is they're trying to create high-availability corporate-level communications that pull in the different sources into NextCloud 20. And they've got this new dashboard, which is your kind of home screen. And you can have a bunch of widgets on there, and you can edit them and have whatever you want. And you can integrate Twitter and weather and all sorts of stuff on there. But I have to wonder, are they overcomplicating things? Yeah, I'm on the side of maybe it's too much, but I think the answer might be it depends on how you NextCloud. I NextCloud mostly for file sync, but I think there are a good portion in our community that use NextCloud for calendar and contact management. And I know even some of our friends use it for project management, like Kanban-style project management and whatnot. And so if if I kind of had a wide range of uses for NextCloud, I could see the use of having a heads-up dashboard. For me, it feels like something I have to get rid of to get to what I want to use NextCloud for. It's If you haven't seen the screenshots yet, and we do have a link at linuxactionnews.com slash 158. But if you look at the screenshot of it, you'll see a card-style dashboard with a big cloudy background. It says, good evening. It has the weather, the time, and then four columns that give you a heads up of your recent mentions, your upcoming events, your recommended files, all kinds of different things you can customize it. It's nice. It's a screen that, in theory, could get you right at some of this stuff. That's great. But for me, I just want to get to my team folder where I'm working on a project with everybody here on the team, and I just got to click right past it. I got a hot tip, though, Joe. You can just bookmark the URLs in your browser, like even several directories deep, and you can jump right to it, and you can bypass this dashboard. Yeah, well, I didn't even know about the dashboard until I read about it because that's exactly what I've done. I've got a bookmark for the raw folder where we put the flags. And so I had to actively seek this dashboard out. Yeah, I would maybe use it too. If I So say I used all the things, like I, I pulled in everything like my Slack and my matrix messages into NextCloud. And then I wanted a really rad dynamic start page that every time I opened my browser, it just loaded. I mean, maybe I could maybe see the use for it. But I, at this point in time, I don't think it's not really a business priority to change our productivity workflow. It just isn't going to migrate into NextCloud at this point in time. I don't know. Maybe people that are starting fresh today would use that? Maybe. And it's interesting that in the post about this, they say that it'll be there for you when you start your day. They're, they are trying to make this your homepage almost, like that you will bookmark that and set that as default and it's the first thing you're going to look at, and you'll get all your notifications and everything in one place, which does kind of make sense for enterprise if you built everything around that. But if you haven't already, are you going to switch to it? That's what they're trying to convince people, and I don't think I am quite convinced. 
It reminds me of the Outlook Today screen back from my old days at corporate offices where we'd have Outlook. That you had this this main screen in some versions of Outlook that would have all of your tasks and your messages and your calendar and your contact information. This feels like a more modern version of this that just plays with more sources. But NextCloud 20 itself, we've upgraded two servers here at Jupyter Broadcasting. We went pretty in-depth in that process in a recent episode of Linux Unplugged. And in that episode, episode 374, we outlined what we think is a really rock-solid, enterprise-grade, bulletproof NextCloud setup. And we took it through three different upgrade processes to bring it up to 20 and reflect on what we did right and what we had to tweak for our hosted NextCloud setup, which is both on-premises and on-cloud. And um, I don't know, if you're thinking about NextCloud, you haven't pulled the trigger yet, check out Linux Unplugged, linuxunplugged.com slash 374, because I've been using our current setup for a year, we all have as a team, and I'm really happy with it. We just had to make some changes to make it a little more cost-efficient, and we we update everyone in that episode. And what my takeaway was is for a small team, at least, it is production-grade. It stood the test of time. It's performed pretty solid after we made initial adjustments in how we use it. And this was really our exit point where we considered a different sync solution, and we're sticking with it. Your setup there sounds an awful lot like hybrid cloud to me, something that IBM's going to bet the farm on. Yeah, at least what's going to be left of the farm This week, IBM announced they're splitting into two companies by the end of 2021. And we have a yet unnamed new co that will handle most of the managed infrastructure services for IBM, like IT infrastructure, service delivery, operational efficiency consulting. What works out to be around $19 billion of IBM's current businesses is splitting off. And the $59 billion worth that's going to be left is hybrid cloud and AI. What that exactly means is not that clear to me. What's also kind of strange about this, Joe, when you look at it, is what will end up happening is Nuco, for lack of a better name, will just end up having IBM as their largest client. Well, it's quite clear that there's going to be a continued business relationship between them. They're going to be working together quite a lot, even if it's not as part of the same official company. And if it isn't clear, Red Hat will remain with the IBM side of the split. They... They're basically key to the hybrid cloud strategy. I mean, what is IBM's cloud play here? Well, they don't really have one. I mean, claiming that they're going to make cloud services the future of their business, well, the only real cloud presence I can see that they have by any public measure is the deployment of Red Hat Enterprise Linux itself. It's not like they have an AWS or Azure equivalent. They're not even like fifth or sixth tier, right? Oracle has more of a public cloud play here than IBM does. So where they take this in the future is going to be interesting because if you look into IBM's financials and you actually break it up, I don't really see a big cloud business. What I see is sales and consulting that gets lumped into cloud. So where the future is for them, I'm not sure, but it's obvious that Red Hat is going to be a key strategy. And now that IBM's splitting up and that what remains is becoming a little leaner and meaner, it kind of means Red Hat all of a sudden just became a bigger fish in that pond. Well, it was Arvind Krishna, who's now the CEO of IBM, who was instrumental in the purchase of Red Hat. So it's not a huge surprise that he's really pushing Red Hat to the forefront of what they want to do as a business. And IBM as a company has been around for a long time, over a hundred years, and they've had to pivot and adapt throughout the years. And this is the latest gamble, right? Is to go all in on this Red Hat hybrid cloud focus. And it seems a reasonable bet to me. You know, hybrid cloud sounds like a buzzword. And the more I say it, 
the more of a buzzword it sounds like. But if you break it down, it's really talking about utilizing on-premises resource and the best of cloud resources, which is an extremely efficient and practical way to build an environment. And in the world of corporate IT and on-premises hardware and services, IBM still has a very strong brand. And I actually think that will come into play. If the theory is such that there is still 80% of the cloud market left, what what we have seen so far has been the easy 20% to put in the cloud, and what remains is the 80% stuff that is hard, the on-premises stuff that's on-premises for a very good reason. If anyone is going to successfully hybridify that, if you'll allow the term, I, I actually think it could be IBM and Red Hat. They have good brands, they have good consulting arms, they have good sales arms, they know how to work that corporate game, which is absolutely key to this. There could be a lot of potential and upshot here, but I think it hinges on the idea that the way we've always done things is going to remain. Because what the implicit acknowledgement of hybrid is, is that you're continuing an old way of doing things. You're running things on-premises, on your own land. You have to have staff. There's a lot to manage. There's hardware. All of which I've just recently re-opted into doing. So I acknowledge there's absolute value to it. But when you're a lean, mean, cut operational cost corporation, it is maybe not appealing. And maybe as new corporations start up or they reboot, they may look to go with all cloud options. As I've witnessed with some recent companies I've worked for, they don't even have on-premises file servers or domain servers. It's all cloud-based. Yes, but what you're forgetting is that hybrid cloud can mean just hedging your bets in the cloud using AWS and Azure or GCP and Azure or some combination of all three or a bunch more cloud providers. Yeah. And that's where Red Hat comes into it with OpenShift and everything, allowing you to spread the load across different cloud providers so that you're not totally locked into one vendor. And part of that can be on-premises or it doesn't necessarily have to be. It can be a mix, right? And I think that's why, in a lot of ways, it just makes sense. And then there's a couple of other factors that I think will be this way for a very long time. On-premises is more private and storage as far as I can see for a while, is always going to be cheaper when you can buy a lot of local disk versus renting storage from someone in the cloud. And I think, if nothing else, there's a lot of driving use cases for just privacy, ultimate achievable privacy, and ultimate achievable low-cost storage is always going to be an on-premises winner. And that's just one of probably many use cases where on-premises is always going to be superior. And that's why I think it is actually a pretty clever play. Like, if you were going to bet, I bet this is how a lot of things will end up for most businesses. This is how it's going to look. And that's what they're hedging on. But it's going to be the biggest pivot we've ever seen from this 100-plus-year-old company. Because what they're really known for is what they achieved in the 80s. And I witnessed it firsthand, and this is in the late, late 90s, I witnessed an IBM rep that showed up before anyone else had made it to the building. IBM had gotten a message that our mainframe had a disk failure. This was for a bank back in the day. And yes, it was a mainframe. It had a disk failure. And IBM was alerted, and they dispatched a service tech with a new disk in his briefcase before anyone had even arrived at the building. And I got there before the sun came up. And that's when I realized, oh, that's why they pay so much for IBM service, because they, they, as a bank, they just needed that level of reliability. And at a certain point, technology becomes only so reliable, and then you have to have a human contract that takes care of those failure scenarios. And IBM built their name for that. You never got fired for choosing IBM. That used to be the mantra. 
if they can still cash in on that, but pivot before it's too late, they could have a bright future. And that's what we're witnessing is them make that attempt. Yeah, and it seems that the culture of Red Hat fits in perfectly with that because if you're willing to pay Red Hat enough, you can get exactly that kind of white glove service from them. System76.com. Let me reintroduce you to who System76 is. If you haven't checked out a great friend of the Linux community in a while, it's worth giving them a visit. You might know that their Thaleo workstations are designed and built here in the U.S. Did you know that their laptops are also assembled in the U.S.? And now with System76 integration of the software, the two have never worked better together. It's becoming something really special with Pop! OS. I've switched to Pop! OS as my daily driver, And a big part of it was they nailed auto-tiling. It's built on modern technologies. It has intuitive keyboard navigations and shortcuts. And rumor has it it's worth learning that stuff because there may be a future where Pop! OS doesn't even require a mouse. You've got fractional scaling built in now. Hybrid graphics mode supports external displays. I'm telling you, the current release of Pop! OS just keeps getting better. And I think there's a new version just around the corner. Go check out a friend of the Linux community, system76.com. Well, NVIDIA gave me a dark vision of the future, or maybe the present, at their virtual GPU technology conference. They announced a lot of AI-related stuff, and I'm scared. Yeah, Joe, get ready. It's going to be AI through the whole stack, they say. But the thing they announced that I'm probably the most interested in is the Jetson Nano, which is a two-gigabyte developer kit. It's it's an SBC that runs NVIDIA code for 60 bucks a pop. So it's pretty cheap in this realm for something that can run CUDA code, and it has two gigabytes of RAM, as the name would suggest. It has a Cortex-A57 CPU clocked at 1.43 gigahertz and a 128-core NVIDIA Maxwell GPU. They did already offer a $99 version of the Jetson Nano with four gigabytes of RAM, but at $59, that is a very low barrier to entry for people who want to get into CUDA and AI. The stuff they talked about, though, that sounds like a really interesting future is using AI to analyze a face and then stream essentially a digital render of that face at significantly less bandwidth. I find that kind of thing fascinating because it means potentially you would be a puppet master without having to do anything. Your face is just being tracked by the computer and then an avatar that looks a lot like you, but maybe like an avatar with skin smoothing effect turned on, like a camera filter effect. It looks like that, basically. And the bandwidth savings is pretty significant, where something might take almost 100K a frame to to do a video conversation. Um, An AI version, that data, just the points of what to move in the other end of the software, that can be less than a kilobyte a frame. Yeah, and all they need to do is send one frame first as a keyframe, as a reference point for your face, and then they just animate it with this data. That is just freaky to me. It's just, I don't like it one bit. I've also heard some discussion of some kind of machine learning or intelligence that's in the network card itself and dealing with packet loss and retransmits in an intelligent way. And then, of course, there's something on the other end that's also intelligent. Imagine that, the computer making decisions on how to better network. (laughs) I don't know if it's possible, but these are the kind of conversations they're having. And this is the use case, is you build it in at the chip level at all levels. Is Of course, NVIDIA is going to make that case because they sell the chip for that. I think the freakiest demo that they showed was the axis fixing. So if you're looking off to the side in your video call, it can automatically make it look as if you're looking right down the barrel of the camera. I just don't understand how that's even possible, and I don't like it again. It's just too creepy and too much like 
a dystopian movie from the 80s. Apple was working on that for FaceTime, and then they, they axed it. But they had that as a beta feature at one point where it would uh, correct the, your eye gaze so that way it didn't look like you're looking at the camera. Or that way when you're looking at yourself, it looks like you're looking at the camera is actually the way to put it. Well, yeah, but it just seems too open to abuse to me with deep fakes and everything. And yeah. what's the future of this going to look like? Instead of just getting phishing emails or texts, you're potentially going to get something that looks like one of your relatives on a video call, and they'll deep fake the voice and more easily deep fake the face now. I just don't like where this is going. It is a weird line where it becomes all of a sudden very artificial. You know, when it's the gaze, that's one thing. You know, okay, now it looks like you're looking at the camera. Okay, so that's an improvement. But when it's essentially an entire 3D representation of your face and what's on the other side is a rendered avatar modeled on your face, that's a different game. But you can imagine how much easier it is to transmit that kind of data. If we could switch to that kind of system, we, I mean, I mean, how else are you going to, how else are you going to communicate with people in real time on Mars? We got to start somewhere. I mean, think about it. Like it really opens up the possibilities if you can start transmitting 3D representations of people instead of their actual image, which has to be sent as close to 30 frames per second as possible. It's just super inefficient. I'm afraid not even this technology is going to make real-time communication with Mars possible. It's just too far away, unless they can somehow make the data travel faster than light, which seems pretty unlikely to me. Oh, I've got the solution. I'm sure NVIDIA will have a chip one day that does quantum bit flipping. So you'll have a chip, two identical chips, and they will instantly flip bits at the same time. And uh, problem solved. Somebody just has to get working on it. It should be easy. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking about that this time next year. In an even nearer future... Firefox may soon display sponsored top sites on the new tab page. This came to light from a bug report where essentially someone was asking for the ability to turn this off. So it may not come to pass, but I think it is reasonably likely that it will happen because Mozilla needs to make some revenue from Firefox and this seems like a reasonable way to do it to me. Right. And unfortunately, because this is the result of bug spelunking, which is great and a totally reasonable way to get news from open source, it's something we do from time to time. It's not an announcement from Mozilla, and it's not with a rollout plan. All of that may be forthcoming yet. I mean, you could kind of guess they'll probably do some sort of staggered rollout in the United States, like they do with most of these kinds of new features, and it appears they'll likely have a way to turn this off. Yeah, but here's the idea, is Mozilla's run trials. They have an idea of the views that this gets, the kind of earnings this gets. And it seems like the new tab page was built with this in mind, and then they'd kind of walked it back. And now this is kind of coming back to that original idea that I think inspired the creation of the new tab page that we have today. My question to you is, as a dedicated Firefox user, does this bother you at all? Well, no, because I disabled this when it first arrived and any new installation, I disable it. I just want a blank tab or just go to Google or whatever for my homepage. Right. Blast that tab open as fast as possible. For those of you listening, this is the Firefox home content section where you can turn off individual aspects of that new tab page. This doesn't sit well with me, honestly. But the reason why this doesn't sit well with me is because I have come of the belief that if Mozilla had managed this better, they wouldn't be in this position. And they essentially ceded a winning position to Google, who has an obvious interest in the browser market, and they were ineffectual in combating it. And now they're in a pretty bad financial state, and as a result, they have to monetize the new tab page, which 
honestly is not going to reflect well when people compare these browsers now. They'll look at all of the free browsers on the market, and Firefox will be known as the one with built-in ads, I worry. And it seems like that could do more damage to their brand, especially since they try to have a pro-consumer, pro-privacy, non-tracking support brand. You know, it's like kind of a conflict with that. So it's a really tricky spot for them, but I also understand and appreciate this position they're in. They need to make money somehow. What else can they do? They've tried with services, and that doesn't seem to be going brilliantly so far. Yeah. And they still have the Google money coming in for now. But what else can they do apart from try stuff like this? I I do take your point that it's not a great look for people's first experience of the browser. And it may make them think, oh, no, I'm not using this. I'll just stick to Chrome, thank you very much, or Edge or whatever. But I just don't see a clear alternative path to revenue for them unless they just become super niche and start charging people to use it. But that doesn't seem sustainable because people don't want to pay for a browser. I completely agree. It's really an unfortunate position. It's really telling, Joe, that in 2020 and 2019, where we have seen so many independent development shops and other places switch over to subscription revenue uh, versus one-time sale or advertisements, that Mozilla couldn't execute on that. And I, I, I don't really understand why, because it seems like they were in a unique position to do this, but now we're at the point we are at, and this is what's left. I think I trust Mozilla to manage the privacy aspect of these new tab ads. And if there was some appreciable way to support Mozilla by me opening a new tab, maybe that is worth it. Maybe I would leave it on, especially if this was big enough that one day they could stop soliciting Google for money. Uh, I, I guess... I guess that would be a small price to pay. I don't really ever foresee me clicking on anything they advertise in there because, quite simply, I'm opening a new tab to get something else done, and I'm not looking for an advertisement to click. But if my page view helped support Mozilla and kept Firefox alive, I think I would leave it on. I think I think I would do it. And so let me put that question to you. If you could somehow get some confirmation that having these ads in Firefox meant that it stayed around and they made revenue and your browser of choice survived... Would you consider turning them back on? Yeah, I think I would. If I was confident that they were general ads and not targeted specifically at me based on data that had been mined, then yeah, if I knew that it was going to mean that Firefox would stay around and we wouldn't slip into a monoculture for browser engines, then yeah, I think I would do that. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there, get a $100 60-day credit on a new account. Linode provides virtual servers that make it easy and affordable to host anything in the cloud. Linode's dedicated to offering the best virtualized cloud computing. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. And every plan comes with their amazing human-powered support 24-7, 365. I use Linode for a game server I recently set up for my kids, but also it runs the backend infrastructure for Jupyter Broadcasting. For your business or for your personal use, check out Linode. They have 11 data centers worldwide, enterprise-grade hardware, and a next-generation network. Check them out with plans starting as low as $5 a month and a $100 60-day credit on new accounts when you go to linode.com slash LAN. If you want to train, you want to support, you want to host, they've got something for you. With dedicated CPU, GPU, or even just $5 a month shared plans, you'll find something, and that $100 will take you far. Go check out my hosting provider, linode.com slash LAN. 
Coinbase has been in the news recently when CEO Brian Armstrong announced it was going to be a, quote, mission-focused company. He writes on their blog, in short, I want Coinbase to be laser-focused on achieving its mission because I believe that this is the way we can have the biggest impact on the world. We will do this by playing as a championship team, focus on building and being transparent about what our mission is and isn't. And 2020 has had no lack of things for companies to comment on, from wildfires to the political events we're currently living through the middle of and a pandemic. And you've seen different companies kind of line up differently around this issue. And in a way here, Joe, I think you see Coinbase as a bit of an experiment saying, we're going to stick to the core mission and not really comment on things outside of that. Yeah, they're not going to have any sort of political agenda beyond pushing cryptocurrencies, which is somewhat political in of itself, but they're not going to get involved in anything else political. They're going to be apolitical as an organization. And what Brian has said to his staff is, if you don't like that, then you can leave. And so last week when this came up, he gave his staff the option of a pretty generous redundancy package, essentially, if they wanted to leave, if they didn't agree with this apolitical direction. And a fair number of them did take that, around about 5% of the company. And the people who are left either agree with him or are too scared of looking for another job in the middle of a global pandemic. This is a tricky line to walk because as you touched on there, crypto, especially right now as it's gaining relevancy, is inherently political. And this is the crack that usually opens the door fully into companies experimenting on politics. And also, I'll note, it's one thing for a couple hundred employee company to make this statement about what they're going to say or focus on. It's an entirely other thing for a trillion-dollar company to make those statements, right? And so uh, there's that, too, to deal with. There's, they're a small business still. They're really a startup. But as a small business owner myself... I kind of see the logic in it because there's enough to do just focusing on the core job. And I refer back to our year plus coverage of Mozilla's decline, where they just recently announced an initiative that has nothing to do with Firefox and the web browser market. And they're investing significantly into that effort to the tunes of multiple millions. There's no direct return for Firefox. There's not even a direct return for improving the web or keeping things standard compliant. They've gotten that abstract now. And so I sort of see Mozilla on the other end of the spectrum for where Coinbase is, where they're heavily involved, so much so that they've deviated from their core mission. Well, that is arguable because the whole free software open source movement is somewhat political. And Mozilla has always tried to push for open standards and open web and that is kind of political as well. Right. That's the crack I'm talking about that opens the door. Just like crypto is just as inherently political. And you once you make that compromise, it goes from there. I think they're doomed. I mean, it's a good position today, Joe, but it's inevitable. Whereas the Coinbase CEO is saying, no, we're not going to have any of that. We're going to just stay focused on the key business that we engage in. And we're not going to be distracted and, and get bogged down in political issues because there's no denying it. We live in a very polarized world. And if you take a stance on something, the chances are you're going to alienate roughly half the people who you're trying to do business with. And I am guilty of this. My show, Late Night Linux, we actually talked about this, on about whether companies should do it. And we admitted that us, as just a podcast, have taken very political stances on certain issues. And that has probably been detrimental 
to the number of listeners that we've got. We must have turned a lot of people off who were on the other side of the fence. So I understand how and why companies get into this position, but you do look at Mozilla and think that they have gone way off piste. Whether or not you think what they're doing is good is irrelevant because what they're doing isn't relevant to the core product that they should be concentrating on, which is the browser. And I was going to put my analyst hat on here and look at this from a strategic standpoint. What Brian Armstrong has done here is he's thinned the herd a little bit without any kind of dramatic layoffs having to happen. He gave everybody a very generous package. But he's also sent a signal to, quote-unquote, crypto investors, saying this is an island of stability. We're not going to let the craze of 2020 disrupt your money. And I think at the end of the day, Armstrong is attempting to position Coinbase as a bank. They want us to think of it as a bank. And there's certain above-the-fray aspects of a bank. You know what I mean? Like, they're kind of above the political fray in a sense. And I think Coinbase wants to build a culture of that to essentially skate to where the puck's going. It's a very strategic, it's a very strategic thing. But it additionally, it's letting people who are maybe aren't as jazzed and motivated about the core, core aspect of the company and instead are maybe more motivated about other aspirational things, they can move on to a job that's a better fit for them. And I think it's kind of a win-win in that way. Well, that might be true, but the likes of Jack Dorsey, the Twitter CEO, don't agree with that. He and some others have criticized Armstrong for this position. Quite strongly, in fact. Well, it is kind of an anti-mainstream line of thinking, but I think when you look at it in the lens of a bank operation versus a social media publishing platform, it's pretty clear why the two companies would take different stances. And, and Dorsey's coming at it from a communications platform standpoint. Think about that. A communications platform. And Armstrong's coming at it from a bank savings investing side, right? These are two very different outlooks on these businesses. These are two very different philosophies. Yeah, that's true. There is a bank in the UK called the Cooperative Bank, which does get somewhat political and say that they only invest in ethical stuff. But then when you dig into it, they say stuff like, we won't provide banking services to any business organization or government that manufactures indiscriminate weapons, e.g. cluster bombs and stuff. But they don't mention anything about companies that manufacture a regular weapon. <laughs> so weapons are okay, just not mines. <laughs> yeah, like cluster bombs, mines, uranium, you know, stuff like that. None of the bad stuff, just the good weapons. <laughs> yeah. So there are some examples of banks. But yeah, I know what you mean. Generally speaking, banks are pretty apolitical. So it does seem like a reasonable direction for Coinbase to go in. Yeah, it just shows you the state of 2020, though, because even making that statement is controversial. Saying that you're going to just take an even-keeled, focused approach is a controversial thing to say. Yeah, and thinking about Mozilla, I don't think they could do anything like this. They just wouldn't get away with it, would they? They have to be political now. They've set their stall out that they are political in various ways, and you either like it or you don't. Well, like I always say, and you guys know it, we'll keep an eye on this and everything else going on in the world of Linux. Check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. If you enjoy multiple Jupiter Broadcasting shows, I have a pro tip for you. We have an all Jupiter Broadcasting's show feed. You can find it in your podcast catcher or linked on our website. Get all the shows in one feed. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. You can find me at chrislast.com. 
and check out my shows Late Night Linux and 2.5 Admins. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. Thank you.